My name is Doug, one of the pastors here at Parkview. It's a joy to be able to meet with you and to worship with you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It's going to be a few minutes before we get there, but when we do, you're going to want your Bible open, okay? Just saying. All right, well, if you're new, really want to welcome you. So glad that you are visiting with us this morning. This is really a wonderful time to check out Parkview, to check out Parkview East, because as a church, we are um, really at the beginning of a vision series. Many of you last week, if you showed up here at 1030, you were alone, okay, because nobody else was here, all right, because last week was Vision Sunday. Three churches and one location over at East Campus. It was an awesome time. Thank you for all of you who uh, helped lead and serve and just participated. Any place where you can have unlimited cotton candy, I say just sign me up, all right? It was a great weekend, but really the, the sort of the point of last weekend was to launch what we believe is a new vision, a new direction, and communicate that clearly with our people where we believe God is calling us. Um, in the years ahead. And if you were here last week, then I'm going to just share quickly what we shared last week. Um, if you weren't, it's the first time you're hearing it, then that's fine. The odds are you're going to hear this a whole lot in the weeks and months, years to come. That the, the new vision that we, have, we believe that God is calling us to is simply this, that we would glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, so when we use the word vision, what we are looking at, what we're talking about is what do we believe that God is calling us to? What's the reality that we see in the future that is not currently happening? And so um, this, this idea that we are to glorify Jesus by making disciples of Christ, glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. When you open up the Bible, it's very clear that this is what God has called his church to do. And so um, we are not attempting to be cute and clever with this language. We're just trying to be faithful to what the Bible asks of us as his people. Now, as we zoom in a little bit on Parkview, what is the specific, unique mission? What is true of us as a church that will always be true to help make that vision a reality? And we get our mission statement, which is this. Parkview Church exists to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples of Jesus for the good of all people. Um, that's, those, those are words that we believe are, have been true about Parkview, but we need to clarify. And as we move forward, this is how we accomplish the vision that God's called us to. Now, just a couple of words about these statements. Again, they are not just statements. Okay, oftentimes, if you've been through vision and mission type of development, oftentimes the, the temptation is to create statements that just exist on a website, maybe in a nice pamphlet that you put on a shelf, and then you tuck it away, and then nothing changes. It's just business as usual. Well, leadership is committed to not letting that happen. Okay, what we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple of months and really honestly years is that we take this vision, again, what we believe God's called us to, and it shines a light on virtually every aspect of who we are as a church. Everything that we do, the structures, the practices, the ministries, um, the campuses, everything that we do, it lines up with this vision. If it doesn't, then we just don't do it. Okay. So this is our attempt to be faithful to what God has called us to be as a church. And as we move through this series, what we're going to see is we're going to see a focus sort of in two different areas. One is a clarifying of our convictions, and two is a call to action. So just think of clarifying our convictions. We're going to start by opening up God's word and aligning ourselves around his truth. Think theology. Think doctrine. What does God say that we are to be and do as his people? Let's make sure that's clear. Let's make sure we're all on the same page, what the Bible teaches about who he is, what God's plan is throughout eternity, and how we fit into that plan. Let's clarify these convictions, okay? 
Secondly, let's call our people to action. If these convictions really are our convictions, then they're going to shape our behavior. They're going to change our structures. They're going to inform how we live our lives individually, but then also corporately together as the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, so throughout this series, you will see us talk in terms of conviction and action. There will be practical steps at the end of every message. This one might be a little unique, but there'll be practical steps, calls to action every single week so that you can participate ultimately in what God is doing through this church. Okay, so question number one, conviction number one is simply this. What we're going to be spending our time exploring this morning is answering this question. And it's this, why make disciples? Why make disciples? If you look at our vision statement, if you look at our mission statement, you will see an obvious emphasis on making disciples of Jesus Christ. The question is, why? Why do it? That's what we'll explore today. Um, Before we do, though, would you just pray with me quickly? Father God, Lord, we thank you um, so much for the opportunity that we have as your people to gather right now and to worship you. Lord, we pray that your presence, we recognize that it is in this place, and we ask that you would make yourself obvious to us. Make your presence known to us, Lord, and that as your word is proclaimed and preached, Lord, your word, which we believe to be eternal and true, we simply ask that you would write it on our hearts, Lord, that you would use this word to form us as your people. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, growing up, one of my favorite sports was basketball, okay? And throughout my basketball career, junior high, high school, um, different coaches, lots of unusual training techniques. Anybody who's done any sort of fitness or any sort of sports, odds are you've been exposed to some creative, shall we say, training techniques, okay? No shortage of them growing up in high school. But let's just be real this morning for a moment. The master of all unusual training techniques is Mr. Miyagi himself. It's true. It's true. If you've watched The Karate Kid, you will know that Mr. Miyagi can unusually train somebody with the best of them. Okay, if you're familiar with the story, him and Daniel LaRusso, this young teenager who's struggling to find his way in a new world, form a relationship, and Mr. Miyagi becomes his trainer, his karate teacher, his sensei, okay? And uh, they enter into this agreement where where Mr. Miyagi will train, and and Daniel LaRusso will learn, and then he will be formed into what will eventually become the karate kid, all right? And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Mr. Miyagi implored some unusual training techniques. When he first started to train Daniel LaRusso, he did so with, uh, with uh, a car and some sponges and wax and soap. And he taught him how to, how to wax on and wax off these vehicles, right? And then it moved to, uh, I believe Daniel was uh, sanding Mr. Miyagi's patio. And so, you know, how to sand the patio. Got, got down on his knees and was sanding the patio. And then next, Mr. Miyagi had him painting his fence. And then if you remember, show, tells him the next day, show up early. We're back at training. And, and Daniel Russo shows up and there's a note on the door. No Mr. Miyagi to be found. And it simply says, paint the house side to side. Don't forget to breathe. 
very important. No Mr. Miyagi to be found, just a bunch of paint cans. So Daniel Russo sets out and begins to paint the house. Well, his frustration grows. Is, he, is this just some form of cheap labor that he's basically giving Mr. Miyagi? Is that what's happening here? Mr. Miyagi makes his way back that evening with a fishing pole, and Daniel Russo just explodes, right? Just so frustrated. And in this moment of frustration, Mr. Miyagi begins to throw punches and kicks, right? And shows Daniel how the, how the training that he had given him, actually, when he gets practicing it, what it was designed to do. Suddenly, in this moment of frustration, it's really a turning point, not just in the movie, but in Daniel's life, because Daniel understands why. He understands why he was on his knees sanding the patio. He understands why Mr. Miyagi had him painting the fence and painting the house and washing the cars. And suddenly, all of the training makes sense. In fact, their relationship now makes sense. And the unusual training practices continues, but Daniel understands why. He gets it. The training makes sense. Folks, a similar effect can happen to us as we seek to make disciples. This command that Jesus has given us It is so crucial for us to understand why. For Daniel, it provided the motivation for his training to continue and the effectiveness of it. I believe the same same effect will happen for us. Now, what I want to do this morning, it's a little unusual. Typically, on a Sunday morning, we take one passage of Scripture and just spend the whole message walking through that passage of Scripture. That's normally how we would approach the text. This morning, it's going to be a little unusual. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 is certainly going to be an anchor text, and we're going to show you how that speaks to and answers this question of why make disciples, but I'm going to do so in a few minutes, okay? What I want to give to you before we get to Titus is I'm going to give you four Four reasons, four answers to that question. Why make disciples? As we consider what God's calling us to as a church, why is disciple-making so central to our vision and mission moving forward? Give you four reasons. The first is this. We are to be obedient to Christ. Somebody asks, why make disciples? You could just answer that question by saying this. Because Jesus told us to. Why should we make disciples? Because Jesus told us to make disciples. This would be a perfectly acceptable acceptable and biblical response. Why make disciples? Because Jesus told us to. Now, it's important to remember that as we consider who Jesus is, he's not simply a good guy of high moral character who had some wonderful teaching, did some really marvelous things, but rather he is the son of God, right? He's the son of God, and so therefore he is authoritative. The Bible tells us that for the, in him the whole fullness of God, of, of deity, dwells bodily. Jesus has all authority. So last week as we considered Jesus' command in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, to go, therefore, and make disciples. Remember, before he gives the command, he starts, he starts by, with a claim, a claim to supreme authority. Jesus has authority to tell us what to do. He has the full authority. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Based on this authority, go therefore and make disciples. Why do we make disciples? Because Jesus told us to, and he has the authority to do so. If you were to walk into my house, let's just say a random stranger off the street. Now, we have children at home, 
I'd like to think they're pretty good kids, if you met them. Hopefully you think so too. Um, typically pretty obedient, you know, good kids. And, if, and if, a, if a stranger walks in off the street and begins giving them orders, telling them what to do, odds are they will be like, hold up a second, right? Now, who, who exactly are you? Uh, on whose authority do you have, you know, operate? This is, this is our house. Mom and dad are sort of the ones who have authority here to tell us what to do. That should be how they respond, right? Hopefully most kids will respond that way, right? Because that person who comes in ha- has no relationship with them. They don't know who they are. They have no authority. Well, it's not true with Jesus. Jesus is claiming all authority, and he tells us, go and make disciples. And so why do we do it? Simply because Jesus told us to. So it certainly makes sense that as we explore this idea of making disciples, that we start with the Great Commission, Jesus' words. How do we, as his people, obey his words, okay? Well, there's a second reason why we make disciples, beyond that of obedience, but related to it, okay? If obedience is the first reason, the second reason is love. Why do we make disciples? Out of love. Our motivation for making disciples begins in the love of God. Love for God is the appropriate response as we consider how God has loved us in Christ. In Mark chapter 12, a lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And if you're familiar with this passage, maybe you remember Jesus' response. It says this in verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What God wants most from you even this morning, and this always blows me away, is your heart, is my heart. Because I know what's in my heart. You know what's in your heart. But ultimately, God wants your heart. He wants your love. All your ambitions, motives, hopes, desires, thinking, reasoning, strength, and energy, all this informed and purified by his word. God wants you to love him. It's interesting if you go back to Mark chapter 12, though Jesus was asked for one commandment, he actually gave two. He says the second commandment, the second greatest commandment is a lot like the first one, Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. To neglect the second commandment is to miss the first The love of God begins a chain reaction in all of us that wells up in our hearts, transforms our lives, and then spreads to those around us. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. And whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we see how love and obedience are related to each other. Our obedience flows, in fact, from our love. It's the response to his love for us and the expression of our love for him. That's essentially what our obedience to God is. It's the response of his love for us and the expression of our love for him. That's why obedience is such a big deal. Jesus says so himself in John 14, 15. If you love me, you know what he says? You say you love me. If you actually love me, you will keep my commandments. So why do we make disciples? Well, if we love God, then we're being obedient to him by expressing our love for him. Third reason, why do we make disciples? Because Jesus made disciples. 
Jesus demonstrated a life of disciple making. One of the things that makes Jesus simply wonderful is that everything he taught us or instructed us to do, he himself practiced. And this is really what makes Jesus so beautiful, right? He calls us to live a life of holiness and of gentleness. And you know what we see as we look at Jesus' life, a life of holiness and gentleness. Jesus lived a life of kindness and compassion, and he calls us to do the same thing. Jesus, when he lived, he, he showed us how to confront the lies of the day with the truth of God, and he asks us to do the same thing. So as we look at what the life that Jesus has called us to, the life that he wants for us, we look to Jesus and we see how he lived his life as an example, as a model. He demonstrates for us what it looks like to live a godly life. And the same is exactly true with making disciples. Jesus asks us to make disciples, commands us to make disciples. We can look at his life and we can see exactly what that looks like. When the Son of God came to earth to usher in the kingdom of God, his strategy did not include launching a political or a military campaign. His strategy was simply making disciples. He invited 12 men to walk with him, share life with him, and as they walked over a period of time and lived together, ate meals together, Jesus spoke the word of God to these individuals. He gave us a model for what it looks like to make disciples. That was his strategy. And here's the deal. It worked. Isn't that crazy? It actually worked. Such a simple strategy it worked. And you know how we know it worked? Because some 2,000 later, here we are halfway around the world talking about Jesus. It worked. He shows us precisely what we are to do. This is his ministry strategy that he's called us to participate in. So making disciples is, is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of love. And it's a matter of simply following in our leader's footsteps. But in his kindness, in his grace, he's given us another reason. And that's what we see in Titus chapter 2. Obedience, love, Jesus' model. Fourthly, let's consider God's plan for, through eternity. God's plan through eternity. Why make disciples? What we'll see in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 is one way you can answer this question is this. Why make disciples? Because God's plan throughout eternity is to glorify his son by redeeming a people for his own possession. That's one that if you're taking notes, I would write that one down. Why make disciples? Because God's plan throughout eternity is to glorify his son by redeeming a people for his own possession. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." God's plan throughout eternity is revealed to us throughout the Bible. When you open up the Bible, you get a picture of the story that God is writing from beginning to end. 
right? In the Old Testament, we're introduced to the problem, but also the promise of a solution. As you read through the Old Testament, you, you find and discover the sort of human predicament that we're in, right? That no matter how hard we try, God's people, they just can't do what's required, right? We discover this as we read the story of God's people in the Old Testament. And as a result, God's, God's plan, his promise is revealed that, that there will come a day where the solution will be presented, and in the New Testament, Jesus Christ bursts onto the scene. All the waiting, the anticipation for a solution has come to a climax with the arrival of Jesus Christ. God's age-long purpose for the world is now arrived in Jesus so that you can see him, you can touch him, you can hear him walking and living among God's people. No more waiting. The solution is here. And if you look at Titus, what you see is that you see this plan. Titus begins to sort of pull back the curtain on what God is doing. Now, Titus is a book where Paul is giving specific direction and instruction on how God's people are to live. And so what we see is that there is, there is present guidance throughout this book and right here in this verse, these verses. Paul speaks to the present moment. There's guidance in the present day for the people of God. Paul is writing to his co-laborer in the gospel, Titus, who is a pastor at the church in Crete, a, a church that Paul had been a part of and set Titus in place of leadership. And, and this church was facing some challenges. There were some unique challenges that were being faced by the church at Crete. It's specifically the challenge of false teaching. In fact, this is one of Paul's primary concerns as he writes these words. He's concerned with the effect that this false teaching will have on the church of Crete, specifically how this false teaching will lead God's people to embrace and to live a life of ungodliness. So Paul instructs, provides practical instruction. This is how it should be in the church. This is how it should be in your homes. This is how society should work. He provides practical instructions in the present age. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Paul speaks to the present day. This is how you ought to live. Verse 14 describes that their life should be characterized as people who are zealous for good works. He gives them clear instruction on what their life ought to be like in the present moment. It's so important for our purposes today to notice about Paul's teaching is that the basis of his instruction for their present day is ultimately grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see it right here in, in these verses, these four verses, where Paul pauses in the middle of this letter for a reflection on the gospel story. He teaches us in these verses that salvation is what God has done for us in the past, is doing in us in the present, and will do for us in the future. In Paul's exhortation on how God's people are to live right now, right here, is rooted ultimately in God's unfolding plan throughout all of eternity. And he goes on to say that this, this your present life, the way you live your present life, he points them to two appearances of Jesus Christ. 
How do you know how you should live? What's the motivation for embracing this type of lifestyle? He points them to the past and to the future. Two appearances of Jesus Christ. The first he refers to as grace, the grace of God, past grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first appearance of Jesus is described as the grace of God, which brings about salvation for all people. And this is referring to the coming of our Lord Jesus to this earth some 2,000 years ago, to an earth where he came on a rescue mission to deliver people from darkness and to transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's why Jesus came. It's past grace. He came. He's the one who made the effort. It was his work that accomplishes this rescue mission, not our work. And the, rea- the, the truth of the matter is, we have to recognize that we are a people who are in desperate need. Jesus himself says that he, he, he came to call not the righteous, but sinners. The healthy aren't the people who are in need of physician, it's the sick. And to this sick, dark world, Jesus himself arrived. The very grace of God appeared so that all people would be offered an opportunity to spend eternity with Jesus. A people from every part of this world. This salvation that we're told of in verse 12 is for all people, meaning that it's available, it's offered to everyone, that there is no distinction of those who can enter into the kingdom of God, whether it's by ethnicity or age or class. No one is to be excluded from this invitation. Christopher Wright says that mission arises from the very heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Mission, what we're talking about, this global mission It's a global outreach of the global people of a global God. That's what the mission of God is. The global outreach of a global people of a global God. Friends, if you're here today and you've not received what the Bible Bible caused you this morning, if you've not received this salvation, this grace of God, if you've not been delivered from the darkness of your sin and transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son, then the message of the Bible is clear. Repent and believe. The appearance of Jesus Christ was God's grace to you, his salvation. Place your hope and trust in him. Don't wait another day. And in doing so, Paul Paul says, listen, and when you do that, everything about your life changes. The way you operate in your home, the way you conduct yourself at school or work, everything about you changes Your hopes and aspirations and dreams become aligned with God's. And he gives you and calls you to a mission. And he's saying, listen, that past grace, Jesus is appearing, is motivation for you to get on mission right here and right now. But secondly, that's not the only motivation he provides. He says there's another motivation. And it's not the past, it's in the future. Not the past grace, but the future Glory, not only past grace, but also future glory provides for us motivation to align ourselves with the very purposes of God. The second appearance that we see in this chapter is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. You see it in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Two phrases jump out at me in those two verses. The first one is 
the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second one is a people for his own possession. While the first appearance of Jesus is marked by grace, the second appearance is one that is marked by glory. Notice the emphasis in the text, the glory of God. The second coming of Jesus will not be that of a baby in a manger who eventually will die on a cross. Rather, the second coming will be that of a king who comes in glory. Indeed, he will be the king of glory. It will be a decisive moment in all of human history, which will change everything. So Paul not only grounds our present lives in the finished work of Jesus, but he also grounds them in Christ's second coming, our co-laboring, our behavior right now is not only out of the gratitude from the grace of God, it is just as much formed out of the anticipation of the return of the king. The life of the believer is booked in, as you see, by these two appearances, the grace of God and the glory of Jesus. And they form every aspect of our life. The other phrase that I mentioned in this verse that should jump out at you is that he is doing all of this to bring a people to himself, to redeem a people for his own possession. This is God's plan throughout eternity, to make disciples. That's what he calls them. This people of his own possession from every tongue, tribe, and nation They are followers of Jesus. They are his disciples. And so as we consider why do we participate in God's, this call to make disciples, it's because it is God's plan through eternity. And if we want to align ourselves with the very purposes of God, then we will become disciples who make disciples because this is how Jesus is glorified, by ransoming and winning a people to himself who in eternity will spend worshiping around his throne. This is what God's plan is for you and for me. And to not make disciples is to stiff-arm God and his purposes in your life. So this is a wonderful invitation for us as the church of Jesus Christ to participate in what God has called us to be and to do. Now, I want to pause quickly before we close. I'm going to give us a moment of reflection here at the end. Um, But I want to ask you, we've been answering the question, why make disciples? There's another question that should probably also be asked. And it's probably one that I think many of us um, would do well just by asking, okay, or answering. And it's this, why not make disciples? Why not make disciples? I gave us four reasons why we ought to be people who make disciples, okay? There are endless reasons that we could probably come up with to answer that second question. Why not make disciples? Here's an example of how some might answer it. Why not make disciples? Well, because I'm really busy. (laughs) I mean, do you know all the stuff I have going on in work and family and the home? And there's just a lot going on right now. This isn't a great time, okay? Or... Uh, why not make disciples? Well, because I don't, have, I don't think I have a whole lot to offer. I'm new to this Christian thing. I'm kind of new to church, and I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot to grow in. I just don't think I'm ready, okay? That might be an answer that, some, that runs through some of our minds. Why not make disciples? Another answer that might run through our minds is, well, 
I've been doing this Christian thing for a long time. I've, you know, kind of arrived, sort of, and I'm here, and I don't know that I need to do much more, okay? I don't have a whole lot to learn. Got to, got to figure it out. Some might answer the question that way. Why not make disciples? Some of us, and I think probably the most prominent answer to the question, why not make disciples, is because most of us do not sense the urgency that comes with this command. Remember I said before that Jesus appeared, the grace of God appeared, salvation for all people. Because, guys, all people need salvation. Oftentimes, we can think that, and I think this is a unique challenge specifically for those who live in the West, that this world just isn't that bad, right? We have lots of conveniences. We can, if we, depending on who we follow on Twitter or what we watch on TV, we can kind of create our own narrative for how things are going in this world. And if we're not careful, we can lose any sense of urgency. Jesus came to earth to bring people from death to life. It doesn't get more urgent than that. This is an important call. And it's also an urgent call because we live in this world, in this present darkness where there are people who do not know the truth of the gospel, who are rejecting it, who need to hear it, who haven't been exposed to it. And Jesus' plan to make disciples of all nations includes you and me. Out of his grace, he invites us into what he is doing And unfortunately, I think in our church, and like church, big word church, we can make a distinction, an unhelpful and non-biblical distinction between a Christian and a disciple. And there's no, there's no distinction. I think the word disciple is used more than 260 times in the New Testament to refer to God's people. The word Christian, I think, is just three. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a people who make disciples. And as a people, if we lean into that, then we start to think of, okay, how does this impact the way that I interact with my children? How does it interact the way that I interact with, direct the way that I interact with my colleagues or my classmates? This is what God has called us to be and to do, his disciples. So as I said before, um, the good news, there's lots of good news with this, okay? I don't want people to feel like, oh, if, you, if you're thinking right now this isn't happening in my life, we can just check guilt and shame at the door, okay? This is an opportunity for us to do some evaluation in our life and ask ourselves, where is this happening in my life right now? So there's going to be two, two things we're going to ask you to do this morning. The first is, as I said before, God's, this is God's plan throughout eternity. And what's so comforting about this call to make disciples, is that we know exactly how it's going to end. He's going to do it. And he's going to resource us. If we want to join him in, in this work, he's going to give us that exactly what we need to do it. Okay? So we should be comforted and confident that what God's called us to do will happen. But we also need to be dependent on him. God's people, the, the reality, the way that this works is that God works in and through his people to accomplish his purposes. It's God at work in our midst. 
Okay? So as a people, we want to be a praying church who's committed to God to use us as his church, to accomplish his purposes. We have to be a people who are constantly crying out for God's help. So action number one, I want to ask you to pray about this specifically this week. Pray for you individually, pray for us corporately as a church, that we would be a people, that you would be a person who makes disciples, that God would show you precisely as you grow in your relationship with Jesus what that next step looks like for you, who it is that he's placed in your life that you can speak God's word to. It doesn't matter if they're a believer or if they're, if they're, if they're not a believer, where they are in their spiritual journey to come alongside of somebody and to speak God's word to them. Let's pray together. Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. is a chance for us to pray as a church via Zoom. There's several other chances, one on Sunday morning, one on Thursday morning. You can get on the website to join other believers from across all three campuses praying specifically for this. Tuesday, 7 o'clock, Zoom, 30 minutes. Let's pray together. Secondly, one of our values as a church is that of honesty. Ronnie led us in confession earlier. Let's be an honest people. What I want to do right now is I want to give you an opportunity just between you and the Lord. Just a moment of silence, of quiet, Aiden, team, um, at some point, come up here, maybe just like a minute or so. But what I want you to do just quietly as you pray is just to, to ask God to reveal to you what is this look like in your life? What is one step of obedience that you can take this week to be a person who makes disciples? Maybe there's a name during this time that God will show you, somebody in your life that you need to come alongside of. Okay? Maybe, maybe some, some of the excuses as to why we wouldn't be doing this. God will, will raise those up and just, just pray that God would take those excuses away and that you'd be reminded of the, the, the motivation, the, the reason why we want to be a people who makes disciples. Okay? So I'm going to give us just a minute and then Aiden's going to um, bring it back around and kind of close us in some worship.